Hi, everyone. Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Voting in the 2022 general election begins October 12th. Today, you're going to hear from gubernatorial candidates, incumbent Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, and his Republican challenger, State Senator Brian Dolly. Both candidates met with the San Diego Union-Tribune editorial board in September to discuss inflation, housing, climate change, and more. This is the first 20 or so minutes of each conversation. To hear the interviews in their entirety, go to sandiegouniontribune.com slash 2022 election guide. Thanks for listening. Okay, today, uh, the San Diego Union Tribune editorial board is joined by Governor Gavin Newsom. Thanks for taking the time as part of your busy schedule. Governor, I appreciate it. My honor. Thanks for having me. Uh, and, and why don't we start, there's a plenty of, of issues to, to cover today, but a big one, um, climate change, the climate emergency, as we call it here in our pages. And I want to talk to you a bit about the unprecedented heat wave we had and, and the reliability of the grid. Um, you know, essentially, we were uh, an emergency alert away from keeping the lights on and the power going and the AC on for folks. At the height of that day, um, the, the the power supply was half provided by natural gas and only a quarter by renewables. So I want to ask you, in the context of all that's going on and, and your, your you know the the state's push to um, get rid of new uh, fuel powered cars uh, by 2035, how do we make that transition when we're, we're clearly not in a place now and that's only 13 years away in a way that's affordable? and accessible to, to all Californians? No, it's, it's a good question. And it's one we pose to ourselves. And over the course of the last year, we've been framing uh, a detailed response. We put that plan out in May of this year and had a number of specific agenda items attached to it, not least of which unprecedented resources that we put in the May revised, January budget in the May revised. And as you know, we're successful in getting support from the legislature, $53.9 million climate package. I'll break that down, but let me tell you more specifically what the architecture of the plan really is about. The number one issue we face, number one may surprise you from my perspective, is the time to delivery of these large scale transition and green energy projects. Many of them are taking five, six, seven years to get the permits, to work through the courts and all the related uh, assaults on these projects coming from various different camps. One of the significant things in our plan and significant things we just got done with the legislature just a number of weeks ago was siting reform, permitting reform, 270 day guaranteed permits, 270 additional days guaranteed to get through the judicial process. We've capped these at 540 days. This is something that was very ambitious when we introduced it and we were able to drive that with the legislature and their support. Number two, we put out a strategic reserve. We put out a proposal, detailed plan, $4.2 billion for a break the glass strategic reserve. It already paid dividends. It's one of the reasons the lights were able to stay on in the last 10 or so days is because we were already to draw down from that strategic reserve. What ultimately will be about 4,000 megawatts in 2024, but we were able to get 630 megawatts online almost immediately after we got that legislation and that framework supported. Number three, we wanted to de-risk. We put out a proposal to extend the life 
of the Diablo Canyon power plant, which provides 8.6 to 9-ish percent of base load power, 17% of all our electric greenhouse gas power, meaning clean, green electric power represents roughly 17% of that portfolio. We extended that for five more years for two reasons, not just to de-risk, but to allow us the opportunity to stress test all the new batteries, all the new pump storage, all the new work we're doing on green hydrogen, all the work we're doing across the grid to improve uh, and uh, to advance uh, these proposals. And so that's the plan I put out, backed with unprecedented action last month and unprecedented supports moving forward in terms of the investments, tax credits, and proposals we have set forth. I'll end on this. The challenge remains pretty self-evidently. We hit about 52,000 megawatts, went right up to the edge because of the extremes. Uh, we could never, if someone said we'd have 10 days of flex alert, we've never in our past anything. We had about three and a half, almost four days of flex alert. We've never experienced something like this. All it's done is sobered us further and reinforced the imperative of moving at 10x the speed we were, even though we quite literally 10x the amount of battery storage in the last two years and made unprecedented procurement, 11,500 11, megawatts procurement through our IOUs in the last few years. But we clearly, Mother Nature is staying ahead of us. We clearly have more work to do, but we're up to the task. And as it relates to electric vehicles, forgive me, it's an important point. At peak, it's 0.4% today, 0.4% of the electricity load. We had consultants hired through CARB through a modeling process over the last two years after I put out my executive order. And when they codified that 2035 EV goal, it shows about 4% of the needs at peak in 2035. We're more than up to the task to address that reliability and load issue, the variability and this transition. Thanks for the details there. I really appreciate knowing the percentages. How about the cost of electric vehicles? They're, they're prohibitive for a lot of families. How do you not only get the infrastructure in place, but then make sure that these vehicles are something that families can afford? That's the right question. So let me ask, answer that from the macro and then the micro. The broader market is addressing that issue from a macro perspective in a pretty profound way. You're seeing the cost of these vehicles drop significantly. Here's why. Everybody's entering in the market. All the excess process profits have been disproportionately going to one or two companies, notably Tesla, not exclusively, but notably. That radically changes, almost analogous to Netflix, that dominated in that space and then the world they invented competes against us with Disney Plus and Hulu and Apple TV and everybody else everybody's now entering into this space. And by the way, if we didn't have this mandate, by 2035, the vast majority of options globally, not just nationally, are gonna be electric vehicle options because the manufacturers themselves said that. Bill Ford, literally hours after I did the executive order two years ago, said we're with California in the 2035 goal. GM did the same thing even without the mandate they know where the puck is going. So that's number one. 
So we're going to see more supply. We're going to see more competition. We're going to see more models, not just Tesla and the higher end. Everybody's in this market. But number two, in the climate package I passed, that includes, by the way, $10 billion specifically for electric vehicles and the infrastructure. Put that in perspective. Biden yesterday announced $900 million for the country. California is doing $10 billion in the climate deal that we just advanced. In there is $9,500 rebates for low-income folks on specifically converting their old cars to new alternative fuel vehicles and down payment assistance of up to $5,000 for low-income folks for the down payments for these electric vehicles in the micro. Building the grid, we're prioritizing low-income communities, addressing the issue of equity with deep intentionality, very mindful of the cost constraints, but also mindful of this. If you read CARB's report and the consultants that we hired, you will see the thousands and thousands of dollars of cost savings that these same families will enjoy because of the reduction in the cost of gas vis-a-vis the cost of electricity and the maintenance-related costs with traditional vehicles versus these new uh, modern uh, vehicles. So we believe on all fronts, uh, this will begin to present itself anew. And the last 10 years will not be indicative of what's happening in this space in the next 10 to 13. Thanks. Governor, we had an editorial Sunday that talked about the research by three nano engineers at UC San Diego, who last month called for nothing less than a Manhattan project to improve battery technology. The, the Manhattan project was famously led by the US National Laboratory at Los Alamos and national laboratories across America have done all kinds of very related research, including on the Chevy Volt. Do you think it's time for a Manhattan project to improve uh, battery efficiency, to make it much easier to switch to a new era that depends more on greenhouse gases that aren't as predictable or reliable? Yeah, it's called the state of California. We're it. We have more installed battery storage than any other jurisdiction on planet Earth. But they are not batteries that are nearly as efficient as most folks believe is necessary to have this kind of mass uh, transition. And uh, the point of the UC San Diego researchers was that we aren't there yet with advanced battery technology. There's promising stuff, but we're not there yet. So shouldn't it be the focus of a concentrated national effort akin to the Manhattan Project if the state is still high? And and I was going to extend by making the point where the demonstration of that. We are a proof point of the progress in this space. We had 200 megawatts of storage just a couple of years ago. It saved us last week. It wasn't just the strategic, and it was all of the above. The strategic reserve was critical, but that was about 630 megawatts. The storage was closer to 3,300. Remember, Diablo at full peak is 2,250 megawatts. So it's that installed battery as efficient or inefficient as one would suggest. But what's happening in this space, we believe is extraordinary. California is dominating in the R&D in this space. We're dominating in the installed uh, demonstration of this technology. And of course, the Biden administration recognizes this, has funded this with the 360 plus billion dollars in their latest package. And there's tremendous amount of energy in this space. And the companies that are moving in this sector uh, are some of the top and most innovative companies in the world, uh, akin 
to the history of the state in terms of noting a Manhattan mindset to solving all kinds of problems in the world. So yes, you wanna be more literal, I understand, and to the extent that we can help support with more intentionality, this notion of a Manhattan Project, but figuratively and otherwise in terms of our R&D tax credit, $6.2 billion, the partnerships with the labs, as you note, and the partnerships that we're advancing in terms of the translation of this technology and the support we're giving with policy to this sector, I think California, uh, is not only well ahead, but we're light years ahead of almost any other jurisdiction in this country in this space. Thanks. Gov Governor, you posed Proposition 30, saying the measure to tax wealthy Californians to pay for electric vehicle programs would actually benefit a ride-sharing company, Lyft. Uh, but wouldn't anything we do to subsidize and forward EV use and charging stations benefit uh, that company as well? In other words, shouldn't any effort to expedite EV use including those in the state budget this year, uh, be applauded? Well, I, they put $15 million up for a reason to get this on the ballot. And it's self-dealing, period, full stop. Now, I appreciate one may excuse that and say, well, it's self-dealing, we need to do this. We are doing this. I just put $10 billion in the budget legislature just approved. I mean, they're coming off as if they're a solution to the problem, when in fact, the state's been leading the nation and the globe in this space for years, $53.9 billion climate package. The Biden administration coming in complimenting it with hundreds of billions of dollars. They wanna tax you, wanna tax folks at a time of vulnerability where we're starting to see the economy move in a very dramatic and different direction than we've enjoyed. Uh, we have strategies, we have plans, but we don't, with respect, need a corporation driving where our tax dollars go for special interest purposes. And, and I'm very sensitive, forgive me, some folks may not be, but I am, to our competitiveness. I'm a, you guys know I'm a business guy. I started not as a politician. I started as a small business guy. I started pen to paper, no family wealth, no trust funds, came up with an idea, managing general partner, opened a little store, one part-time employee, Pat Kelly, grew it to about 1,000 employees, 23 small businesses. I'm passionate about entrepreneurialism. I'm sensitive about our competitiveness with other states. We have much lower taxes in Texas for 99% of people, fact. But that 1%, that stubborn top 1% that allowed us to enjoy a $101.4 billion operating surplus this year, we have to be sensitive there, particularly with the abundance that we've enjoyed in the last few years. I'm not sure it's the right time to ask for a tax increase that drives special purpose interest back to the companies that are promoting it. And that's why I am out front opposing, even though my party, the Democratic Party supports it. I, I don't always march to the beat of the party's drum. And this is an example of it, unfortunately. Governor, we've talked a lot about electric vehicles, but we haven't talked much about public transportation. And as we've seen all throughout the state, you know, cars and Californians' dependency on cars has gotten in the way of you know, increasing housing density, which is another one of our huge problems here in the state. So. Do you think it's realistic to envision a future where more Californians are getting rid of their cars in lieu of public transit, bikes, and walking? And if so, what's standing in our way? I think there's all binaries in that space. And I say that as a former mayor, county supervisor, not just as governor, as it relates to cars or no cars, public transit is the third option. I think mobility is radically changing. I think what electric vehicles provide, first of all, electricity is the architecture for broad-based 
uh, decarbonization, but also broad-based economic transformation. We have 43 electric vehicle manufacturers in the state of California. It's one of our largest imports, or rather exports, exports in the state. Mobility is radically going to change. Mobility as we know it, not just traditional car shares, mobility. Zoning is going to radically change. I have a bill on my desk, one of those 500 left of the 1100 plus that I've had to go through that looks at parking relationships, parking ratios for new developments. So yes, it's about jobs, housing linkage, it's about density around transit corridors, but it's also about something much more profound. It's about reimagining land use. It's about democratizing streets. It's about mobility being reformed. It's about having platforms, not just ownership, individualized ownership for each and every one of us in a vehicle two, three, four. Uh, and so this is an exciting space. The comp big company, GM and everyone else gets this. And I think, you know, change happens very, very slowly and then very fast. And I think we're on the cusp of that with um, AVs, uh, on the cusp of that with electrification being the baseline for that transformation, software upgrades in these vehicles. Uh, I'm very excited about it. And I'm very excited about what that means for cities since I'm passionate about urbanization, passionate about planning and zoning and passionate about reimagining thoroughfares and quality of life and connecting jobs, housing linkages in a, in a way where we disabuse ourselves from some of the old binaries of the past. Governor, I have a question about housing. Um, I'm a millennial, I have a good career, and yet I can't afford even a one-bedroom condo in the place that I live. I know that it's not a new problem, but I also know I'm not alone. I went to a comedy show the other day, the guy on stage said, who here is a millennial? Everybody cheered. And then he said, who here is a homeowner? And it was dead silent, and it was really shocking. And so my question for you is, is there a solution to this problem, or is this just something younger people will have to accept? No, there is a solution to the problem. It's, it's called Econ 101. Every young person knows it well. I think we all seventh grade econ. Supply demand. We have an imbalance. Now, I know it's more complicated and they have more nuance than that. And there's a thousand sophisticated papers out there to back up the fact that it's more nuanced and complicated. But in some ways, it's not. <laughs> supply demand. We have more demand than we do supply. As a consequence, cost is arbitrarily high. Cost of construction is high, zoning, process, time value of money, all of that are complicating factors. And that's why I'm very proud to have signed 17 CEQA bills in three years since I've been governor, have two more that are on my desk, have one of the most significant and transformation housing uh, packages in front of me in the next few weeks that I look forward to signing, but we've been working on for years. Very proud of the work Senator Atkins has been doing over the course of the last new years, a number of years around jobs, housing mix, around ADUs, around affordability at all income levels, including workforce housing, folks earning 80 to 120% of AMI, not just low income housing. I'm proud that we've been stubborn by creating a new housing accountability unit in order to induce supply by getting local municipalities to construct their legally required units under their arena goals and under their housing elements. Heck, I sued not just Huntington Beach when I became governor, I just sued San Francisco, sent them a threatening letter because they're not producing housing. The sixth arena cycle we just did has the highest number of legally required units in our histories, 2.5 million units. 
So, you know, New York Times did an interesting, and forgive me, but it was nice to read at least New York Times acknowledging California's housing leadership. But I appreciate there was a, a, a subtle point that was made that this just happened overnight. But I'm, tag, I'm it. I'm accountable. I get it. Trust me, I get it. I get plenty of it. And so we, are, we own this. It's our original sin. It's the issue that defines more problems in this state than any other issue, affordability. It's the reason people are leaving this state. It's not taxes, because again, places like Texas, much higher tax states, but it's the cost of living, cost of housing, and the burden that places on people out in the streets and sidewalks, the ultimate manifestation of our failure in this space. So we've been intentional, $2 billion in tax credits, revolving loan funds, new accountability units, more aggressiveness with this state in terms of our zoning policies and CEQA policies, and, and opportunity in a few weeks to sign some landmark legislation, Buffy Wicks leading the charge in that space, other legislative leaders. And I can assure you, we're just winding up. Two years have been last three challenged by a global pandemic, some macroeconomic challenges. This remains top priority and focus and your com comic and the comic response is not so funny. It's devastating. And you're absolutely right to ask the question and it's our responsibility to answer it. Uh, but I assure you, I'm not giving up. And I really believe this is a California for all, not just the very rich and those struggling, but for working folks in the middle class and folks like you. Uh, today, the, the San Diego Union Tribune editorial board is joined by Senator Brian Dolly, who is challenging Governor Gavin Newsom uh, on the November 8th ballot. Uh, Senator, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for giving me the opportunity. And, and let me ask you about the opportunity. I mean, uh, uphill mountain, to say the least. Obviously, Newsom was on the ballot uh, for the recall just last year and won very, very easily um, facing some high profile uh, opponents, um, you, you kind of have carved out a, a bit of a name for yourself in Northern California there and, um, as a farmer and as a senator, but um, don't have the high profile um, um, of some folks maybe on the ballot in 2017. Why, why go through this and what do you hope to accomplish? How realistic do you think your, your challenge is here? Well, first, let me just give you a little bit of background about myself. Uh, I'm, I'm a farmer. My, my grandfather came to California in the Great Depression. Uh, was a World War I veteran, was able to put in, uh, because of his service to our country, to get a land grant in Siskiyou County. He put his name in a pickle jar, they drew his name out, and he got a, He was able to get an 80-acre homestead uh, in Siskiyou County. So that's what brought the Dallies to California 92 years ago. Uh, we continue to farm uh, in California today. We have a place in Lassen County where I farm. I served 16 years on the Board of Supervisors in Lassen County, uh, as it, and it left our county uh, debt-free and uh, all of our pensions were funded and came to the legislature in 2012, uh, served six and a half years in the assembly and then three and a half years in the Senate. So I don't, I don't want to leave California. It's being very difficult to continue our uh, business and our neighbors. And so uh, I represent about a, almost a million people in California. And uh, I think California is going in the wrong direction. We've had, you know, one party control for the last 25 years of the legislature in the last you know, 12 years as uh, a Democrat uh, governor. And so I decided to 
throw my name in. And uh, I think the direction of California is going in the wrong way. And I want to uh, have a future here in California. Uh, I'm not leaving. And so I'm uh, giving Californians an opportunity for some balance and something different than what we've been seeing for the last uh, four to eight years. Let me ask you about what we saw in recent weeks. Uh, climate change obviously is a huge uh, problem um, globally for the state of California as well. And a lot of that um, has filtered through in the energy industry. Energy reliability is a huge issue. We just had this unprecedented heat wave and I think it was nine or 10 days of flex alerts and we almost had to have rolling outages. Um, what was interesting to me was that at its peak, 50% or more of the power we were using was from natural gas sources and 25% from renewables. Um, the state you know, uh, regulators just uh, created a new policy to have uh, to ban new gas powered cars by 2035, which plays into this as well. So we're very familiar with Newsom's approach. What would yours be? How would it be different? And how would you thread that needle between transitioning to a greener, cleaner economy while also making it uh, affordable for Californians? Well, great question. And some, it's an area that I am very passionate about. Uh, obviously, I think California is doing it in the wrong way. We're actually, um, we're setting targets. Uh, uh, the, the legislature and the governor, both Gavin Newsom and uh, uh, Governor Brown have set targets, but there's has been no real plan of how we're going to meet those targets. So for example, we have focused, uh, California's focused mainly on wind and solar, which are both intermittent, as you just mentioned. Uh, we need to make sure that we have power available, green power, uh, between the hours of basically four in the afternoon until about nine to 10 o'clock at night. So how do we do that? We actually uh, overproduce power in some parts of California, uh, We have and we have no transmission to get that power to other places in California. So number one, we need to build transmission lines to actually take green power from one place of California to the other, which will help uh, balance the grid and it will also uh, drive the cost of energy down. That's number one. Number two, um, we need to make sure that we uh, don't just set a mandate for cars. Uh, it would take 10 nuclear power plants the same size as Diablo Canyon uh, to power 30 million electric cars. And in 13 years, we're not gonna be able to buy a combustible engine in California. So I think that's not going to happen. It won't happen. We won't build those power plants. And there's not enough uh, power in the West uh, to be able to transfer power from other states into California. So my plan would be, number one, first, uh, make sure that we have uh, enough power supply, make sure our grid is in uh, is not uh, the infrastructure set in place to actually be able to do what we need to do. I and mean, that's not going to happen in 13 years. So what's happened is we've just been driving up the cost uh, and we've been subsidizing wind and solar massively in California, which is the ratepayers and the taxpayers, because there's also tax credits for those two uh, sources. We need to uh, increase things like um, geothermal, which is uh, renewable. We have a lot of areas in California that we have geothermal, which is taking hot water out of the ground, uh, generating electricity and putting it right back in the ground. It's very uh, carbon neutral. And so those are opportunities where we can do we can we can bring that power up uh, in times where it's we don't have the wind and solar because as soon as the sun goes away and the wind stops blowing, we have a huge problem in California with production. Uh, we need to be able to transition away from gas and coal, uh, and we can do that uh, if we have a plan. But unfortunately, we've set targets, and those targets are are forced upon us, 
without a plan of being able to deliver the electricity that we need for Californians. Quick follow-up, um, and it's weird to have to ask this, th th these sorts of questions, but m many in the Republican Party have made these questions necessary. So just to, to ground us in the conversation on climate change, do you believe climate change is real and, and it's caused by humans? Yes, I think we have an impact on our climate, absolutely. I'm a farmer, I'm seeing it. Uh, uh, we've been farming, like I said, the same properties for a long time, for, for generations, and we see a change. Um, but what really is frustrating to me, I think my approach is very different than uh, the Democrat Party's approach. The approach that Californian uh, Democrats and, and Gavin Newsom have taken is that at all costs, we're going to just do it here in California. California is 1% of the world's emissions. We're the fifth largest economy, though. So we use a lot of resources here in California. And quite frankly, they come from other places. So we're off, we're pushing out uh, production of, of concrete, of things that we need every day. Uh, actually, uh, oil, we have 1,200 oil wells here in California where we would be able to produce that oil that we're going to need, that we use every day in a more environmentally safe way. So what happens is when you set these targets and you push it to other countries that use coal-fired power plants, or in our case, 24% of our oil comes today from Ecuador, where they are bulldozing down the rainforest uh, and pumping oil and having oil spills where we've had uh, oil actually get into the Amazon River. It's not helping the environment. We all, this is a global issue. It can't all be burdened by Californians. And I would prefer to see us drill for that oil here in a safer, more uh, effective way for the climate. The other thing I want to mention about climate change is what's really frustrating to me is we don't count all the all the carbon in California. What do I mean by that? California has had these mega fires, and a lot of them have been in my district up in the not this first Senate district. The Dixie fire last year burned 980,000 acres. And that carbon is equivalent that was emitted from that forest fire to all the combustible engines in California, plus some. So if we really want to talk about climate change, we need to take fire into the equation. I did a bill to actually count carbon from fires and it was it got killed in the first committee, the Environmental Quality Committee. And it's because we don't count carbon. Well, if we're talking about climate change, let's talk about climate change. Let's stop pushing our industry out of California to China where they're building coal-fired power plants. Let's count the carbon from our forest. Let's go thin our forest, allow fire to do what it's supposed to do, but burn low intense, which it did for, for millennia before we came here. Uh, and we've, we need to count those. And that, that actually will balance out climate change more so than just putting the burden on the ratepayers and people here in California. And let me ask you the other question I feel uh, need to ask is, is who won the 2020 presidential election? Joe Biden won the election. What do you think about the day that, that day, January 6th, uh, what, and some members of your party's reaction to it, many of them at a congressional level, I know you're not running for Congress, but as a member of the party, many of them uh, sought to block the certification of that election. Yeah, look, I think it's, uh, I wasn't there. I, I was, you know, I'm running for governor of California. Look, if people that were there that broke the law need to be prosecuted, those who were there just exercising their uh, right for free speech uh, have that right. And uh, that's not something I'm focused on. There's a, obviously investigations going on, um, but I'm focused on making California work uh, for my family and your family. And that's really where I've been focused. There's a lot of outside politics that have 
not a lot to do with really California that um, in, in, in this case, uh, you know, there it, we'll see what happens with the with with the politics that comes out of that. Thanks. Senator, in 2004, uh, a historian named Thomas Frank wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas that had as its, as its premise that Kansas residents always voted against their self-interest because they were conservative and they didn't care enough about you know Kansas becoming a prosperous state. I've often wondered about the parallels in California. In California, in the last 20 years, poverty's gotten worse, housing's got less affordable, of late crime has gotten up, concerns about schools remain intact. Overt examples of government folly like high-speed rail and EDD are everywhere, and yet Republicans can't make inroads. Has it ever occurred to your party that your values are so out of sync with California that things can go to hell and you still won't get elected? Well, we all obviously know that California is a blue state. That's uh, This is a definite uh, uphill battle, but I will, I will just share with you, you're correct. Every one of those things has been created by not our party. They've been created by the party that's been in power for the last 25 years. There will be someday, I think, for sure, a Republican uh, governor, and there will be a change in California because uh, California can't continue along this path and survive. What do I mean by that? We can't continue to just spend money and not get results. Uh, Gavin Newsom, as you said, spent $20 billion on homelessness. That's $75,000 per homeless person. And we have more homeless people and we haven't actually helped people. So there are a lot of opportunities, I think, for Republicans. Uh, you know, the Democrats are really good at talking, just as you, the last two questions were about national politics, not about California politics. I want to focus on California. Uh, we're going in the wrong direction, and California is going to hit some hard times. That's not, that's that's going to happen. Uh, when, when will Californians realize that this party that's in control is not really helping them? There is no upward mobility for a person who is poor in California. The highest energy rates, the highest electricity rates, crime is running rampant. All those things are due to just lack of good policy in California. We need to put uh, violent criminals back in prison where they belong and off our streets. We need to actually help homeless people that um, are addicted. Addiction is the biggest problem we have with homeless people. That's the number one thing. Uh, and that leads to mental health issues. And obviously, you touched on housing. Uh, we can build uh, sports arenas for special interests, streamline the process. But for some reason, uh, the legislature doesn't see fit to do those same things for housing. We need to drive the cost of living down in California. People are suffering. And I believe that you're going to see uh, a lot higher turnout for Republican in this race alone. Uh, and it's going to eventually be uh, where California Republicans have an opportunity because all everything that has happened in California is not due to Republicans. It's due to the lack of good policy coming from the Democrat Party. They're very good at painting this picture that Republicans are evil. Well, Republicans haven't done anything in California to put us in this position, not one single thing. And I think Californians are waking up to that because they can't afford to, to live here. And a lot of people are leaving. A lot of our major uh, companies have left. There's been like 396 uh, companies that headquarters like T Tesla, Oracle, HP that have left California. And that's a tax base that we're desperately going to need at some point in California when the bunny dries up. I'll just share this with you. I know you all know that California's tax base basically comes uh, from uh, uh, capital gains income. And when the stock market does what it did the other day, and it actually takes a turn for the worse, uh, those capital gains monies won't be coming in and California will be faced with some, some struggling times. 
Fortunately, California has been over the last 10 years flush with money. Uh, but the results that we've seen from the money being spent is zero, as you mentioned in the in the question. One more follow-up for me, and then I will happily defer to others. The assumption that it's eventually voters will come to their senses and elect a Republican governor doesn't seem to be acknowledged that we have a large sample size here. In the last 16 years, the only Republicans elected to statewide office are um, a mega superstar uh, movie guy and uh, Steve Poisner, who is running against the lieutenant governor who was hated by his own party. So uh, where's the uh, example of any learning curve or whatever you want to call it, adjustment to reality among voters? Why would you have any confidence that you can continue on the path your party's in and the results will be different? Well, I think I bring a little something different to our party than what you've seen in the past. Um, just as the, the some of the first questions you asked me about, like climate change and, and the ability to be able to um, talk about the issues that I think are, are very important to California about climate change. So I, I'm a different candidate. I've been in the legislature uh, for 10 years. I've been in the minority my whole uh, political career, 16 years on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, you know, California is Republic or Democrat, but I've been able to work across the aisle and get things done. I will continue that when I become governor. And I think that's going to be a positive for California, not so much polarization to the right or to the left. There's a lot of people in the middle uh, that are looking for something different. And I hope I can uh, articulate that enough to let them know that, you know, I am not uh, I'm not Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm actually somebody who's been here working uh, in the Capitol, trying to make change for the positive in California. Hey, Senator, I have a question um, about housing. I, I appreciate your focus on, you know, the cost of living. I'm a millennial. I think I've made a good career for myself. And yet I can't afford a one bedroom condo in the place that I live. I was at a show the other day. It was a comedy show. The guy on stage said, you know, who here is a millennial? Lots of noise. Who here owns a home? Dead silence. You know, it's really stunning. And so I think my question for you is <clears throat> what can realistically be done about housing? Or is this just the reality we have to accept? It is definitely not the reality that you have to accept. There are many factions to all things that are driven up by the cost of living in California. Um, to, to, be, to, to directly talk about housing, it's mainly the red tape that we have and the ability for, and a lot of these laws that have been passed like vehicle miles traveled. So a developer who wants to build has to equate to all these uh, scenarios where we have uh, vehicle miles traveled, green building standards, and that's dr driven up the cost. Also, the biggest cost is litigation, <clears throat> where we've seen uh, activists and environmental groups use those uh, uh, abilities with California Environmental Quality Act to be able to slow down building. And that's and then energy cost, <clears throat> as you know, we pay 76% higher electricity rates than anywhere most, most across the nation. And so that drives up all production of all the things you need to build a home. And I mentioned earlier, whether it's concrete, whether it's rebar, whether it's a two by four, all those things are higher in California than they are in other states. We need to drive down the cost. Energy is the very first place you start. You drive down the cost of energy. That means all your products, everything you, food, all those things uh, go down in price in that. And, th and then we need to streamline the process to where, um, like we do for, uh, sports stadiums in California and allow builders to do what they need to do to build so that millennials, I, I have, uh, you know, two sons, uh, one's home running our farm. The other one's on the campaign trail with me here. And I was speaking with him just the other day and he's like, dad, nobody in my generation thinks I'm going to own a home. I graduated high school in 1984. There was 
nobody in my class ever thought they would not own a home. We all knew we would own a home. California was a place where you can expand, you can live your dream out. It was up to you to go do it. Uh, but the, this next generation doesn't have that same outlook for California. And it's because it's very hard to attain that. We need to get back to the basics, drive down the cost of energy, drive down the cost of building materials, and drive down the regulatory process in California. And we can have that dream again. Thank you. <clears throat> can I ask you about guns in California? Um, we seem to be at the point where we can't go to school, we can't go to the mall, <laughs> we can't go to the movies, we can't worship without being afraid that there's going to be a mass shooting. Um, what what do you say about what do you say to people about that? And also, how do you feel about assault um, weapons being banned? So I'm pro Second Amendment. I stand for the Constitution, number one. Number two, though, uh, law abiding citizens are not the problem that we have with firearms. And most of the legislation that comes through penalizes people who are law abiding citizens who should have the right uh, to be able to purchase and, and own a firearm to protect uh, themselves and to protect their and give them their constitutional right. So I would just say that most of the legislation that comes through is unfortunate. There's really no teeth in it. I'm going to give you an example. There was a bill that came through uh, the, the Senate to just this session a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago that was about ghost guns. And we talk a lot about illegal firearms and people having illegal firearms in California. And we, we don't want people to have uh, illegal firearms, and we don't want felons to actually have access, people who we know are dangerous, who shouldn't have uh, firearms. You need to get those. So we have, there's called the APPS program, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that um, it's, <clears throat> I'm so sorry, <clears throat> it's uh, armed prohibited persons uh, with firearms. So we know there are a lot of felons in California that have firearms. Uh, as Republicans, we came forth and asked that we fund more uh, of the local sheriffs to be able to go get those firearms out of those uh, felons' hands. Uh, and the legislature, the Democrat legislature, uh, blocked that. They didn't want to see fit. The attorney general hasn't been aggressive at, of getting firearms that we know felons have in California. So that's step number one. We need to uh, beef up that program and get firearms out of the hands of we of known criminals. <clears throat> Number two, a bill came, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> the bill that came through uh, was a bill that ghost guns, and we actually put an amendment in that said, if you have a ghost gun, it becomes a felony. The Democrats party line voted to kill that bill. They don't wanna actually put teeth in the bill and actually make these people who have firearms felons, uh, and they killed that. So we need some balance here. At the end of the day, we need to, Still have, we'll still have the second amendment. It's been challenged many times. Uh, we'll have the right to bear arms in, in California and across this nation. But my focus would be make sure we keep guns out of criminals' hands and people who are dangerous and, and make sure that we actually do the work that needs to be done in that area. But do you, do you believe that the average person should be able to have an assault weapon at home if that's what they choose? And do you own a gun yourself? I own many firearms. Yes, I do. And uh, I believe in the Second Amendment. Uh, the definition of what's an assault rifle has been de been debated a lot. Uh, and in California, we have the laws that are on the books. I abide by them. In California, abide by them. I more want to focus again. There's criminals will always have guns. Well, I want to make sure that criminals don't have guns, and law-abiding citizens have the right to bear arms.
You can find more information online at sandiegouniontribune.com slash 2022 election guide. There you'll find Q&As with candidates, pros and cons from both sides of each proposition, videos of the editorial board's interviews, and more. Thanks for listening.